Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you. I'm grateful that you are here today, and I thank you for being here. I want to encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 uh, in a Bible. If you don't have one, there's some there in the pew in front of you, or you can access that on your phone, however you want to do that. But I want you to read along with me here in just a minute from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, I want to express my thanks to Mark, uh, to the worship team for leading us in worship, uh, for Mike and his words and thoughts leading us around the Lord's table. I want to ask you to be, uh, to be praying today and this week. Uh, we have a group of students and adults that be- began their journey to Camp Bandina this morning, and uh, I want to ask you to be praying for them. There are, I don't know if, if they're gone, but before church they were not gone. Chris, each time the students do a trip, uh, makes prayer bracelets uh, and asks us as a church to uh, pray for each student and each adult that's going on whatever trip that's happening. And so I think there were three or four names that were still left back at the Connections booth in the foyer. And we want to cover our, our students and our adults in prayer this week. And so uh, if you would, some of you would see that, see that spot there at the Connections booth and grab uh, one of those bracelets so we can be sure and be praying for all of the kids that are there. Uh, I want to also make just a quick plug for... This coming Wednesday night, um, we last summer we did uh, what I called a, a reconciliation series, where we invited on Wednesday nights different uh, preachers and ministers from other churches in town to come and to speak on our on, as a part of our Wednesday night program during the summer. And this summer we're doing that, but kind of a, a mini version of that. And so this Wednesday night. Uh, Matt Pugh, who is the pastor at Country Bible Church, is going to be here the following Wednesday night. Brent Gensel, who is the pastor at First Baptist here in Kaufman, is going to be here. And I want, I want to encourage you to be here because I, I, I want people to show up, obviously. But also, in particular, I'm particularly interested in this week, and I'll talk about this week uh, at this point mostly because we have had as a church, most of you are aware, a lot of uh, interaction and shared uh, experiences over the last several years with Country Bible Church. And you've heard me talk about that, and you've experienced that, but this Wednesday, Matt is going to share about kind of the journey toward unity with us from his perspective and from the perspective of uh, CBC, Country Bible Church. So I think it'll be of particular interest um, and as he shares about that perspective. Uh, I'll be gone the next two Sundays after today, and you have the, the privilege and gift of being... Uh, preached to and hearing the preaching of two of our elders. Joe Dara is going to be preaching next Sunday and Mike Holder the Sunday after that. And so I also want to encourage you to be aware of that and, and come and hear their hearts as they've been preparing some things that they're uh, looking forward to sharing. Or maybe they're not looking forward to it. They just agreed to do it. I twisted their arms a little bit, but I'm really grateful that they're doing it either way. But today uh, we're going to continue in Ephesians. We've been talking about as we've studied through the book of Ephesians, growing in Christ. I think that's one of Paul's primary themes with the book of Ephesians is maturity in Christ, growing up in Christ. And, and today Paul turns his attention uh, with verse 21 in Ephesians 5 toward the family and specifically today toward the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And so we're going to Read uh, beginning in verse 21, Ephesians 5, 21 through the end of the chapter. And, uh, and then we'll look at what that's talking about together. Paul says these words, he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, 
Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to, love, ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it and they care for their own body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you, one of you should also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come and recognize that uh, this is an important passage of Scripture. This is an important uh, part of Paul's letter to the church and in Ephesus, and it's an important word for us here today. And what I pray most of all, God, today is that uh, whether we're married or unmarried, that, uh, that we will have hearts that are open to what it is I think that you want to say to us through this text. I pray, God, that you will help us to be people that submit to one another, that love each other as Christ has loved us, and that you'll open our eyes to see ways that we can do that in increasing me- to an increasing measure, and you'll open our ears so that we have the right ability to hear what it is that you want us uh, to do. Father, we're grateful for the love that Christ displayed to the church, um, and that we get the, the privilege of seeing how that love is to be played out in the marriage relationship. And so we pray, God, this morning you'll give us uh, wisdom. I pray that you'll speak through me and that you'll uh, touch our hearts with these words. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week in the first part of chapter 5, we, we talked about spiritually sleepwalking. And, and if you were here last week, you know that I poured water on the stage during the sermon. And so you may be thinking to yourself, what does Doug have up his sleeve today? And, uh, and it's going to be much cleaner. I can promise you that. There will be very little cleanup. I did have to have a fan blowing on the stage during the week to make sure it was all dry. But we talked about, as we, we, we looked at the first part of Ephesians 5, spiritually sleepwalking and, and, and saying that you're living a life for Christ, sort of, right? That you're, you're kind of living your life for Jesus with your mouth, but not really with your life, with your words, with your actions, not following through with your actions. And Paul's encouragement in the earlier part of chapter 5 is to wake up. He says, wake up. If you're sleepwalking, wake up. And his counsel is instead of sleepwalking is to be filled to overflowing, which is why I spilled the water on the stage, with the Holy Spirit so that your life makes music to God. Your life becomes worship to God so that your life turns into songs, hymns, and spiritual songs that get lifted up to the Father. And now he takes that idea, I think really, and continues it, but turns his attention to 
indivi- from individual lives, from you and me waking up in Christ, to the family life. And specifically today, to the relationship between a husband and a wife. In a few weeks, the first part of chapter 6, we'll talk about what it means to grow up in Christ as it relates to children and parents, as it relates to working relationships in the workplace. But today, Paul talks about the marriage relationship, and so that's what we're going to do. And here's why I think that this, this family stuff, this next section of Ephesians is often referred to by scholars as the kind of the household codes, kind of how you operate as a family, right? And here's why I think if you, you know, if, if you didn't maybe think through it, it might seem like it was a little bit kind of just kind of thrown in uh, and didn't maybe fit among all the other things that Paul's been talking about in Ephesians. But I think that it's included in this letter to this church because the reality is it is one thing to practice resurrection, to live out a resurrected life in the world, right, as an individual. But it's another thing altogether, I think, to practice resurrection at home with the people that are closest to you, the people that know you the most. And on top of that, maturing in Christ isn't just about the way you live in the world, right? It's not only about that. It's also about, and it's it's incredibly important that we grow up in Christ, that we mature in Christ as it relates to the relationships in our families. And though this is kind of the end of the letter, and we're coming to the end of this study, and it's been really meaningful for me, and I hope that it has been for you. But the truth is, though we're at the end of the letter, the tr- I think the truth of, of practicing living resurrected lives begins at home. If I'm spiritually walking, sleepwalking at home, it impacts my ability to love uh, my wife like Christ loved the church. It also impacts my ability to disciple my own children, right? If I'm spiritually sleepwalking at home, it also, right, if it doesn't start there with those relationships that are closest to me, then it, how, how can I possibly impact the world, my city, my community, my neighbors, my, my coworkers, right? Because they're going to look at my life and they're going to go, well, I see some things that seem to be off a little bit. And so I think, though, that Paul addresses this family, these family matters kind of at the end of the letter, I really think practicing resurrection begins at home. And Paul isn't letting anybody off the hook, right? There are clearly, as we just read, expectations for Christian husbands, and there are clearly expectations for Christian wives, that you will be walking in the light, that you will be growing up in Christ. And I think there's, a, there's an idea out there in the world that is false. And that idea, that false idea is this, that marriage is easy, right? If you didn't know before you got married, you learned really quickly, wow, like it's going to take work to be married to somebody and to be committed to them. And, and if you haven't experienced difficulty in your marriage, then just hold on, right? Wait a little while because it's coming. But today, though that false idea exists, I want us to set the record straight that marriage is not easy. Marriage can be rewarding. Marriage can be fulfilling. Marriage can be fun. Marriage can be joy-filled. Marriage can be life-giving. But the fact is that marriage requires work. It requires effort. Marriage is a decision that you make to another person. And Paul begins his kind of speech here, this part of the letter, by saying in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, 
you have to know that in the first century, this, this one line was a radical idea. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The thing that he says next, after verse 21 and verses 22 and 23, about wives submitting to their husbands, not a radical idea at all, particularly in the first century. In the 21st century, it is a little bit different an idea, and so we have to kind of process that, which we'll do in just a minute. But what's assumed when Paul says submit to one another is that husbands are also charged to submit to their wives, submit to one another, right? You hear that. I'm not making that up. There's a mutual choice that I will submit and that Lana will submit, that if you're married, you will submit to your spouse and they will submit to you. It's unheard of in the first century for, for Paul to say something like that because in that culture in particular, men had a particular role and they, they knew that and everybody kind of knew that. And so Paul is, is doing something different. But what is Paul doing exactly? Well, to answer that, I, wanna, I want you to think back to the first marriage, Adam and Eve. In the first marriage, God creates the earth and makes man in God's image. But soon it's discovered that there's not a suitable helper for Adam among the animals. If you haven't read that part of Genesis, just go back and read it. And you're like, thank God that God figured out there wasn't a suitable helper for men among the animals, right? (laughs) And, And so it's discovered that there's not a suitable helper for Adam among the animals. So Eve is created. And things are great until the enemy enters the picture. And in Genesis chapter 3, we find the serpent having a conversation with Eve in this scene that we're familiar with, right? Doing what the enemy does, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Lying to Eve, convincing Eve that, uh, of the lie that he's telling and her living under the authority of that lie and eating the fruit from the tree and then things kind of begin to unravel. So Satan deceives Eve. And when Adam and Eve sin, not only do they experience separation from God, this is really important. Not only do Adam and Eve, as a result of their sin, experience separation from God, but now there is a curse that's brought upon the whole world, right? The world is under a curse, and the curse falls on everything, including marriage. This is one of the reasons I I believe that marriage can be really hard, that it requires work, because we are living under the reality of a kingdom that Jesus has established. It's already here, but it's not yet fully realized. And so we always feel the effects of the curse in our relationships, in particular in the marriage relationship, but also in just relationships with other people. That's why they aren't all perfect, right? And so because of the, the curse and Adam be, and Eve being deceived, what happens is, your, I just want you to think about this in your human relationships, and, and, and it applies to your marriage as well. As a result of the curse, your heart is bent always toward focusing on you. As a result of the curse, your heart is always kind of arced toward y- you and your focus and your priorities. and your, We are selfish as a result of the fact that the cur- we live under the curse. And marriage is this really interesting relationship that invites you. Right? Marriage is a, is a relationship where you get invited into a, a relationship that isn't about you. 
Though, though, the, though often that's the thing that kind of gets spun about marriage, that it's about you, the reality is marriage is a relationship that is not about you. And in Genesis 3.16, this is the way that this story plays out. And God speaks to Eve and it says this. It says, To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire for your hus- will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, we're not going to talk about the pain in childbearing. I know all the women want to shake their fist at the sky and at Eve for that one. But... The focus that I want to talk about here is of this last part. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Because of the curse, this is what I want us to understand and see. Now this beautiful plan that God had originally intended for marriage, to have one flesh, right? To have suitable partners, to have this picture-perfect relationship between husband and wife. Now, instead of that, Adam will rule over Eve. God says. And instead of God's beautiful plans, marriage is going to become a power struggle. This is not the way God imagined it, though. This is the way that it became as a result of the curse. So, but here's what's interesting. If in, this, in this verse here, in, in verse three, uh, Genesis 3.16, the word desire actually means something like, kind of like conniving, uh, like control, Uh, like manipulation, something like that, right? And the husband is going to rule over you. That word rule there means something like conquer. So you have this thing that's going on where uh, because men are going to have superior physical strength, there's this lording over thing that's going to happen. And women, though they may have less physical strength, they will will go about uh, assuming the power in the relationship through manipulation and conniving and control. Women will try to scheme and and get the upper hand in this way, but the man will, because of his superior physical strength, right, is going to lord over the woman. So since the woman isn't as physically strong, she'll use her brain. This This is why phrases like, which are not biblical, this is why phrases like, the husband might be the head of the wife, but the woman is the neck, exists, right? You've heard, maybe you've heard that, that phrase, and we laugh about that, ha ha, the, yeah, the husband might be the head of the wife, but the woman's the neck, which means, if you haven't heard it before, you know, the neck is what turns the head, right? So this is why that exists, because I think there's this, there's this thing that is so ingrained in our world as a result of the curse that we don't even see it. So there's this constant power struggle that's happening, right? And, it's, and I think it's in, in response a husband can impose his strength, which I think is why things like physical abuse, motivating a wife with fear or harsh threats, I think that's why those kinds of things exist. Because each person is operating within the things that they have available to them to gain a leg up, a hand up. So instead of one flesh, God's beautiful plan where husbands and wives are working as partners becomes husbands and wives working as competitors. And it looks like this, something that I, I saw someone else describe once, but I want to I use this morning. It looks like this. Well, sorry, can't draw.
my arrows are really off today. This is what a marriage relationship under the curse looks like. It is a race to the top. It is a race to say, you know what? They didn't forgive me, so I'm not going to forgive them. They didn't do what I want, so I'm not going to do that for them. They didn't give me what I wanted, so I'm not going to give it to them. They, you know, they're withholding intimacy from me, so I'm going to withhold it from them. It's, it's, or, or any version, like you could just put anything here, and it's, they didn't, so I'm not. I, they didn't, so I'm not. They didn't, so I'm not. And it's, it's, this is how it operates, right? We lord over men with strength and maybe with, with words, and then it kind of just back and forth, back and forth. It's this never-ending game. This is the world where husbands and, and wives try to one-up each other, where they hold on to grudges, where they don't forgive, right? Well, they didn't forgive me, so I'm not going to forgive them, where they don't listen to each other, where they put their needs first above their spouses. Where, and I think in, in this way, right, what happens is the marriage can feel like that you're living under a curse. And this is what Paul says to this. He says, submit to one another. Paul's advice for breaking the curse and reversing things is mutual submission, which looks like this. This is what a kingdom marriage looks like. It's a race to the bottom. It's a race to say, how can I right, serve my wife or my husband? Who can submit the most? Can I out-submit my spouse? How can, I mean, this is like the greatest marriage advice from a single guy that ever probably existed, right? Paul's like, this is how you make it work. You submit, I submit. You submit, I submit. You submit, I submit. You submit, I submit. And it just on and on and on it goes, right? And we can, we can laugh about it. We can think maybe, maybe I'm not sure, of that, but I believe this can work, right? Submission is putting their needs first. It's I put their needs first and then maybe in response, even if they don't, even if they don't, put my needs first, I keep going. Even if they don't respond, I keep going. Even if they don't respond, I keep going, right? Looking for a way to serve. I forgive. Well, what if they don't forgive me? Guess what? You still do it. What if they don't forgive me? I still, and eventually the hope is that I go, they go, I go, they go, I go, they go. Forgiving one another, serving one another, doing things that really don't, you really don't want to do because they want to do them. I don't really want to do that, but I'll do it because I want to submit to one another. Back and forth and back and forth it goes. And it can work. It can work because, not because of us. Uh, I, I think because of the why behind what Paul, why Paul gives this instruction. And so first, I want, he speaks to wives. And so that's what we want to do. I want to reread verses 23, uh, 22 and 23 and 24. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the savior now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything so for wives right he, he, he says now as the church submits to Christ so also you are to submit to your husband what's interesting about this instruction from Paul isn't that Paul's giving the instruction again in this day in particular, it was 
a pretty accepted thing that this would be the order of the family and how things would go. What's interesting is the why behind, Walt, behind Paul's instruction. In the past, Paul says, you may have submitted out of fear, right? Because of the husband ruling over you, Genesis 3.16. But now you are submitting, your motivation for submission is based upon the character of Christ. Out of reverence and awe and respect and fear of Jesus and what Jesus has done for you. And so, you, and also, hopefully, based upon the character of your husband as a result of that, right? So Paul uses this church, Christ thing as an example. The church submits to Christ because of his great love for us, not out of fear. Hopefully, you don't submit to Christ out of fear. The church surrenders to Jesus out of gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us. Your motivation is rooted in the love of Jesus out of the things that Jesus has done for you. So also you want to do those for the person that you have committed and made a covenant to, which is why I think Paul continues and he addresses husbands. In verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Here's the thing. The call for husbands could not be greater, right? You are to love your wife, Paul says, as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He died for it. And he took the lowest place, right? He took the lowest place. He, he raced to the bottom for you and for me. Paul says to husbands, you actually have the power in the relationship. So the question is, what are you going to do with that power? How are you going to use it? Are you going to lay it down? Or are you going to lord it over your wife. If you're going to be most like Christ, though, you have to know that you have to lay it down because this is what Jesus did for you. I don't know if you've ever thought about this scene in, in, the, in the Gospels where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, but what strikes me about that scene is as the disciples and Jesus are all sitting around the table, we wouldn't have any question about who the most powerful person in that room is, would we? It's Jesus, but the most powerful person in the room rather than holding on to his power, stands up, wraps a towel around his waist, gets a basin of water, and washes their feet. He races to the bottom because he knows that will be the thing that shows them the extent of his love for them. We are to pattern our lives after the self-sacrificing love of Christ. And one of the great lies of Satan that many, many, many people buy into is that your marriage is mostly about you and your pleasure. I, I want to say this as clearly as I possibly can. I think it's the, the, one of the great lies from Satan, particularly in relationship to the marriage that, that God has instituted. That, that One of the great lies is that it's mostly about you and your pleasure, but this is just not true. It is primarily about it isn't primarily about you and your pleasure. The marriage relationship, and I think we see this in what Paul has said, the marriage relationship is intended, church, to proclaim the gospel. 
The marriage relationship is intended to proclaim the good news. And I think one key to understanding how marriage works best, right, is as we think about the marriage relationship, living a resurrected marriage, living out in in a resurrected marriage is actually goes back to the beginning of verse 5 where Paul says, Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul says, Because you're following Christ, put on the character of Christ. Because you're following Christ, do what Christ did. Walk in the way of love. And if the husband and the wife are both committed to imitating Jesus, this is the option that will play out in the marriage relationship. They're going to make it their aim to behave like God, to imitate God, right? And how does God behave? He lowered himself, he became human, and Jesus came into the world and became the curse to end the curse. That curse that existed from the beginning when Eve and Adam sinned in the garden. And Jesus came into the world and he became that curse, took on the curse in his body to end the curse. And so too we are to live in love as God has loved us, imitating God. This is what a marriage that's resurrected looks like. And when you look at the command to imitate God, I think it even sheds light on what Paul says about headship, right? Which is probably the most tricky part of this in the 21st century, you know, where women have, as they should, uh, more opportunities and more, uh, more things that, they are avail- that are available to them in the, in the world, in society that they can do. And so what we wrestle with is like, well, what does it look like if now that women are, are increasingly being seen as they should, as equally made in the image of God, they're not, they're not like a, a subhuman under man, right? That's not what Paul is saying as Paul says the husband is the head of the wife. So what, is, what does Paul mean by that whole headship thing? And there's really a couple of schools of thought on this I want to just very quickly try to talk about. Um, and I would guess if we were to take a vote, even if you don't know the words I'm about to use, there are both of these schools of thought that exist in our church, probably in every church, right? One school of thought is what is the big word is called egalitarian, which simply means, well, let me say first, the other word is complementarian. Complementarians are seen as, uh, if you're a complementarian, you, you, you very much think men and women have dar- very different and unique roles, um, and, and there is more, I'm ver- simplifying this way down, so that I hopefully can make a larger point. You see, if you, if you think more like, like a complementarian, you think that uh, men have a specific responsibility as the head of the house, right? The, there's headship and there's an authority that comes with that, a responsibility that comes with that. Egalitarians would say, uh, every, we're more equal. Husbands and wives are equal. Both made in the image of God. Both can make decisions. Uh, a complementarian would say, you could make decisions, but the husband's going to get the ultimate say, Right? And, and so we kind of, this is, the, this is the way Christians have thought for, you know, a long, long time, thousands of years. The thing that's interesting about it is, I would say, you know, traditionally more people in our tribe have probably seen themselves as complementarians, uh, where there's distinct roles and, and, and that kind of thing. 
An egalitarian would say, yeah, women can do the things that men can do. There, there's opportunities there. And here's the thing that's interesting to me about this. If we look at Jesus as the, as the model, right, as the model for, again, he's the head of the church, and so the church submits out of, we submit to each other out of reverence and respect for Christ. This is what I think it means. It means that we, we do for our spouse what Christ did for the church. Which means, if, even if you're an, you're an egalitarian, like if, if you think about it this way, or you think about it this way, right? Either way, as a husband, if you take the lead in the area of selfless living, right? Even if, 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 if you're, if, even if you say, I probably tend, it's probably not a big secret, to think God made men and women equal and, and both in, the, in his image. I think that Lana and I make decisions together. I'm not going to make some big decision without her. So we probably trend a little more toward this way. But even if you're more in, in line with the way of complementarian thinking, here's the thing. If in that situation the man goes first, right, you're taking the lead. I think it should be both, men and women taking the lead in, toward selfless living, right? But even if, even if the man is supposed to be, and I think that certainly we have a unique responsibility to do that, I'm okay with that too. That's why I'm not really in either camp. I kind of probably am really more somewhere in the middle. But I think even if you think that that is the man's primary responsibility, to take the lead in the area of selfless living, to take the, area, take the lead in initiating service, to take the lead in forgiveness and extending forgiveness, to take the lead in apologizing and offering and extending forgiveness, to take the lead right, in submitting and modeling what submission looks like. Right? I don't know a wife on the planet that is going to ever have a problem with her husband going first with any of those things. You want to go first? You want to, you know, uh, that's, that's really what it, what it looks like, and I think in many ways that is what husbands are called to do is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. The idea, though, I think also exists that women have that responsibility, and it's, I'm not making that up. Paul says it, right? Submit to one another. And so you have to kind of wrestle through what that looks like in your own marriage relationship. Your motivation being love and your initiative growing out of your desire for husbands to love their bride like Christ loves the church, Right? And, and this is the thing is, even if your spouse isn't uh, a believer, this is the coolest thing about this model is that you can go first and you might find yourself in a kingdom relationship even if it doesn't exist currently because you take the lead. Because you choose to, to follow the way of Jesus and to believe that this is what Christ did for the church and so this is what I want to do for my spouse. And Christ, what, what Christ did was he took the lead for us all the way to death. And because of his great love, as Paul says earlier in Ephesians, God made us alive with Christ and saved us by his grace. And what Paul wants is not only for you to grow spiritually, not only for our church to grow spiritually, but for us to understand that we have been set free to live a different way because of Christ's love for us. The curse has been undone. I think that's what Paul is doing in Ephesians 5. He's undoing the curse. He's, he's, Jesus already undid it, but he's making the Ephesians and us aware of the fact that that curse has been undone. And that includes not only for the world, but also our marriages. We've been set free to live out the design for marriage that God intended, where husbands and wives are living as one flesh, suitable helpers, 
partners in life, a dynamic duo for the kingdom of God. We've been set free to live out the design for marriage that God intended. And here's the thing again. Even if you are unmarried this morning, the thing that I, that I find helpful about this is that it, it is also uh, applicable to you. Because this, this, the reality is every relationship in Christ can be modeled after this, right? Every kingdom relationship, this, this applies. There is this intimate way within marriage, certainly. And it's, but it's true in relationships in general, too. Put one another above yourself is what Christ is saying, what Paul is saying. Be Christian is what he's saying, right? Imitate God. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what this is. How would I want to be treated? That's the what I'm going to do to them. I'll, maybe they'll do it back to me. I'll do it to them. They'll do it to me. I'll, and so what happens is you end the, the cycle and the recycling of getting to the top, of one-upping each other, of well, I'm, I don't get mad, I get even, I'm not going to forgive them because they didn't forgive me. I'm going to hold a grudge because they held one. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm going to give my spouse the silent treatment because they did something wrong. Right? That's this. That's this kind of stuff. And when we choose the other way, we're modeling our relationships after Christ, putting one another above yourself, imitating God and what God did for you and for me, loving your neighbor as yourself. But if you are married, know that the other thing is that you have been now been released by the love of God to live in a resurrected marriage. And so I think the thing that's helpful about this image up here behind me is that I think when we can kind of, when we have the right language in our marriage relationships, we can recognize what it is we're doing to each other and we can call out that kind of behavior, right? If you do something that you, you feel is this, they didn't forgive me, so I'm not going to forgive them. They made me mad, so I'm just going to ignore them. Whatever it is, right? If you can recognize that, then guess what? You can be the first to say, man, I really screwed up. I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? Can we begin working toward reconciliation and restoration? As soon as you recognize it in yourself, and all you have to do is make one more step, and you're there. You're on the track toward a kingdom relationship. You've been released as a married person by the love of God to live in a resurrected marriage. And if you're unmarried, this is the thing, if you're unmarried, know that you too have still been set free by the love of God to love others the way that God loves you. This is the way of kingdom relationships in general. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yes, we have distinct roles and responsibilities. And yes, we have to constantly work at navigating those and figuring those out. And those are going to be different in your marriage. I don't do any of the money in our family. And so some of you would say, well, Doug, you're not, you know, fulfilling your role as the head of the family. Well, we'll have to talk about that. Because if I did the finances in our family, we would, it, I probably wouldn't be wearing clothes up here today. It would be a disaster, right? Lana handles all of that. And that's not about male or female. That's about gifts. That's about recognizing who, who is better at something, right? And so you have to figure that out in your own way and what, what the relationship that you're in, in your marriage, what that looks like. And I hope that what you do as you do that is remember that the call ultimately is to love each other as Christ loved the church. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to grow up in Christ. And Paul is just Briefly directing his attention and his focus to the marriage relationship because, again, church, what he wants most of all is to say, if you are married, remember that your relationship, man, there is no, there, 
it's so unique and intimate and so special and so sacred that the only thing he can think of to compare it to is Christ and the church, which should at least, I think, give us a sense of like, oh, this is a pretty serious thing, right? This must be a pretty serious relationship, that I, something I should really work hard at. If Paul's going to use those two things, could there be any two bigger than those two? I don't think so. He wants our marriages to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news. So when people look at us, they go, man, those people are, there's something about their marriage like that's just different. I see, a, I see yeah, I see that they have fun, that they, it's life-giving, that they enjoy being together and all of those things. But, but mostly what I see is Jesus when I look at that couple. That should be our aim. And we get there by following this path to the bottom. The greatest among you must be your servant, Jesus said. And that applies whether you're married or not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you for the beauty that we see in the body of Christ. We thank you, God, that that Christ has modeled for us how to live in this world as husbands and wives. That God, Christ modeled for us how to do that by going all the way to the cross. And may we this morning have eyes to see that that is how you intend for us to function within our marriages, within our homes, within our workplaces, within our families, within our church, that we choose to lower ourselves and to become servants like Jesus. We're thankful, Father, that we are not in it alone and that Christ is available to us as our guide, as our mentor, as our friend. And we pray this morning, God, that that, uh, for those marriages here that are on the wrong track, that you will help someone in the marriage to begin to go first in submitting to the other. And that, God, that you will open our eyes to see ways that uh, that we hurt one another through this sort of cursed track that we run on so often. And that we'll be kingdom people in our marriages, in our, in our homes, and with our friendships. And that we'll, we'll navigate how, what it looks like to, to live in these relationships so that your name is made more known in all the earth. So that your name receives glory and praise. That our relationships, and in particular our marriages, announce the good news of Jesus Christ. That is our desire. We want people to stand in awe of you and not of us. We know that they can see you through the way we live. And so we pray that you'll help us on the journey. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would stand with me this morning.